All right. Welcome back, listeners. My name is Tia, and we are happy to be here and happy to be continuing our journey through the Black literary canon, uh, whatever that might mean to you. Uh, So this time around, we are pivoting into a new genre, which I'm really excited about. So for the next few episodes, we will be discussing The Gilda Stories by author and activist Jewel Gomez. Uh, So released in 1991, the speculative fiction novel follows the experiences of a Black queer heroine as she reckons with the reality and maybe even the responsibility of being a vampire. And so while previous uh, books have featured elements of magical realism, this is our first foray into fantasy and science fiction, uh, which is really fun since two of us read in this genre quite frequently and one of us has less familiarity with it. Um, So I'm really looking forward to our discussions. Uh, And so before we get started, I will turn it over to Adjua for a a check-in. Thanks, Tia. Um, So I thought it'd be fun to do a little check-in since... I guess the last time we recorded was back in February. Um, Mm -hmm. We are still in a pandemic, regardless of what you think. Um, (laughs) So there's that. Well, but um, yeah. So I just wanted to ask generally, I have a couple other questions I'm thinking about, but generally, how are you doing? How are you coming into our discussion today? I'm good. I am nearing the end of my uh, last quarter as a as a PhD student. So, Woo. yeah, I'm 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 happy to be done. This <laughs> I have de- developed an anxiety disorder, and I got shingles. <laughs> oh no! Yes, stress, stress. Correct. Um, so I'm really happy to be done, and this space is always really fun for me. Um, and again, yeah, I'm really excited to be talking about a, a genre that is. Yeah, a bit more in my wheelhouse. So good. Also, just got my my second dose of the the vaccine yesterday. So yes. so life is looking brighter. You know, I, I have some hope for the summer. So I'm good. Um, that's great. Not the shingles. Uh, this is Thurston coming to you live. Uh, <laughs> I am doing. Well, I'm really, I'm really glad to be here. This is an exciting, fun uh, part of my life, and um, that I've been looking forward to working with you, two lovely people. And the day uh, was longer than I thought it was going to be, so I'm like a little tired, but also really excited. Um, I mentioned I had some, I had a latte earlier, which is probably the first latte I had in over a year, so my body's. Like, <laughs> reacting to that with <laughs> shakiness um but i'm here so yeah happy to be what other questions do you have for us well how are you doing Adjo. yeah <laughs> oh <laughs> we gotta do this again okay cool <laughs> um i'm good i think i mentioned in the last couple episodes that i was just waiting for spring mm-hmm. to come and I feel like a totally different person. Like yeah. I spend time outside. You got your cat owner. Yep. No, yes. Yes, you are. <laughs> you are. Uh, he's a communal cat. No, he's not. He just happens to like me the most. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> if you must know, his name is Virgil. Mm. He's a beautiful cat. Um, oh, is he beautiful? I didn't see him today. Tia. <laughs> I don't know. You sounded real affectionate for somebody who don't got a cat. <laughs> Um, okay i did not give him that name but his name is virgil Mm. 
and uh, I actually didn't see Virgil today. So low key, I'm like worried, also a little bit sad, but also like he'll be back, right? So Hmm. okay, (laughs) spoken like a true pet owner. (laughs) So that's new in my life. Um, It's sunny outside. I was on vacation last week in Savannah, Georgia, which. In my opinion, is a classy Florida because <laughs> you get the beach, mm-hmm. the views, but no chaos. Well, see, mm-hmm. so and people wore masks and things like that. So that was fun. Always important, right? A novel idea. Um, well, so yeah, that's how I'm coming into this. Nice. But uh, beautiful. Yeah, the other thing that I wanted to ask was. What's the most interesting thing you've read besides the book we're discussing in these episodes? Oh, maybe not even interesting, but like memorable, um, convicting, angering. Okay. Brought you joy. Hmm. Yes. Fantastic. (laughs) It's one of those like on the spot questions where it's like, oh, maybe I've never read a book in my life because I can't think right. of anything <laughs> at the moment. I've read nothing. <laughs> hmm. Oh, I mean, I, this, I mean, as a grad student, I read so many things, some of which are very interesting, but, uh, you know, sometimes very forgettable. I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if this is necessarily interesting or memorable, but I'm, I'm taking a, a course right now that is very much about like the title of the course is Economic Objects, Capitalism as Medium. Um, and I'm auditing that course mostly because I, I don't, um, I don't, think very much in the Marxist tradition. Like that's not something that I'm attached to, at, at least not dogmatic Marxism. It's, it, yeah, it's not uh, something I'm particularly attached to, but I do find a lot of the readings particularly interesting. So um, this past week, we, we read a lot of stuff within the field of animal studies and um, thinking about how blackness might be um, an entry point uh, for thinking about it and talking about, and maybe even sort of like, you know, as a, as a means of activism of thinking about how we treat animals and, um, and not even in the sense of like, oh, we treat animals the way we treat black people. Cause that's not the argument she's making. And it's a, Thanks. yeah, it's not a good argument to make. Let's not do that. Um, <laughs> let's not do that. But, but this, this author's, um, argument really is that, um, we cannot talk about the sort of the history of mistreatment towards animals without talking about blackness at the same time. Um, so I have felt that very convicting as, as someone who really does not um, think a ton about that sphere of oppression. And like, I'm, I'm not a vegetarian, I'm not a vegan. Um, but yeah, sort of thinking through the, the ethical implications of what I eat and what I put in my body. Um, and I said that as someone who ate chicken wings earlier. So I, but just, yeah, it's, it's making me. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, th- I thought that was very thought provoking and it makes me want to 
explore animal studies more, which is, yeah, it's not a field that I'm, you know, particularly well read in. So, mm -hmm. thanks. Um, in a similar vein, uh, I am currently reading through, I would use the word a devotional, but I don't know if the author would call it that, because um, I believe she is uh, not a person of like Christian faith. Um, and to me, devotional fits in that category. Anyway, book called Undrowned, a Black Feminist, Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals, which feels like outside of what I typically read or think about in 18 different ways. Um, but yeah, I'm just reading through sort of the lessons and it's, you know, each kind of chapter talks about two or three different types of uh, marine mammals, some that are endangered, some that are extinct, and sort of connecting that through a lens of Black feminist thought and talking about rest and what it means to be um, hunted and what it means to be unsafe or have to have to adapt. And it's it, it is it is thoughtful, insightful, interesting in a lot of different ways. And I'm I'm really taking my time going through it. So I've had it. For at least two months, and I'm like halfway through. <laughs> mm. I'm really taking my time to chew with uh, everything that she's presenting. Mm. And the author's name is Alexis Gums, like gums in your mouth, I guess. Mm. Um, but yeah, anyway, Undrowned. Highly recommend. Nice. <clears throat> um, oh, I need to. <clears throat> um, so I would say that almost in the same vein but different Ooh, like three more same like, veins yay <laughs> <laughs> that's a good name for a podcast or a trio um uh oh i'm reading a book it's it's not like a book book but it has pictures <laughs> that it talks about <laughs> <laughs> okay it is a book okay because okay. it is published um but it's called The New Plant Parent, and it's by um, this person that I follow on Instagram. Uh, his handle is Houseplant Journal. And so um, he just like goes through uh, a bunch of different plants, how to care for them, even his like theories on plant care. Um, and one of the things that I really appreciate about him is that he talks about overcare and oh. under caring. Mm. Okay. I also work at a plant shop. And so a lot of people will come in and be like, well, all my succulents died. And I'm like, what did you do? They're like, well, I watered it every day. Mm. That's not what it needs. Um, it. So, okay. Um, and so a lot of our plant care is over care and under care and not always what the plant needs, but what sometimes we want for the plant mm. or how we want to interact with the plant. Okay. Mm. Um, and he also mentions like interesting ways to display or mount plants. So I have a fern and mm. I thought about instead of it living in a pot that could live mounted on like a wooden plaque. Like, I don't know. Um, so that might be another project, but I like this book because it's not heavy. It's mm -hmm. just fun. Yeah. So, mm. yeah. Um, that actually was the only question I could think of. <laughs> <laughs> All 
right, let's see. Anybody have anything else they would like to share? <laughs> All right. Well, as Tia mentioned, this is a bit of a shift for us in terms of genre. Um, I, I picked this book, one, because I did think the story was awesome, but two, because I think it's a light fantasy for Adra's sort of first steps into the fantasy genre mm. since she was a wee ass. So, um, <laughs> yeah, to, to kick us off, <laughs> to kick us off, I just want to ask you both, like, what were your first impressions of the Gilda stories? All right. Now that I'm at my big age. <laughs> uh, yes. I, was about to say I don't know if that's going to go over well. <laughs> However much of this Audra decides to keep it in the editing, um, we, just spent like, we just spent like 20 minutes trying to fix technical issues. <laughs> and as soon as we start recording this, so whatever, it's fine. <laughs> Y'all are here for our laughter anyway. Ooh, oh my goodness. All right. Um, so, <laughs> Thirsty, you guys. I think Thurston, you gonna have to issue the question again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> or both of you, what are your first impressions of the Gilder stories? Gotcha. Okay. So, um, seeing as how I am not a fantasy reader by choice, um, <laughs> I was forced into this. Um, no, I willfully joined this group <laughs> um couple things one i must confess that i did not finish reading the book that's real mm-hmm. and now all the feelings from high school are returning so oh, <laughs> just, what? like when i was showing up to english class oh. no one i didn't read the book <laughs> <laughs> trying to participate like hey. yeah Page. Piggybacking off of her point. Right. Listen, that's how right, I show up right. to every graduate seminar. I have not read the okay. material. Okay, it's okay. Talk about participation points. Okay. That's how you get them. Oh, all right. As long as y'all hear me say something once, mm-hmm. we're good. So, you know, um, but uh, yeah, I did not finish the book. And it's not because I didn't like it. She's auditing I... this episode. What? <laughs> <laughs> You're auditing this episode. <laughs> This is a course in fantasy and you are auditing. Okay, I'm taking my sweet time. Um, (laughs) I just just feel like I needed more time to suspend some of the normal rules of like life as a human. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I was like, what? She's 300 years old? What? Mm -hmm. She can read people's like every every single moment. I was like, I oh, I have to remember this is not real. And like all the other books I've read that are fiction are not real either, but they could happen. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm just, I'm just saying. 
who says this could <laughs> Okay, I need see this is why I don't like fantasy because <laughs> some people are like, oh it could happen. I'm like, no it no no it can't. Okay. Um okay. but maybe I would be okay with this book happening, or at least the parts of it that I did read. So uh, <laughs> the other thing I will say is that although I'm a newcomer to fantasy I, I'm intrigued because uh, you're not bound by some of the parts of life that are just like, we wish we could bypass that. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, you can play around with history and time travel and space and how you do things and how you get out of situations. So um, there's a freedom to fantasy that isn't always present in some of the other genres I've read. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, particularly nonfiction because can't change nothing about that. <laughs> it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Well. But this right here, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. So um, all that to say, first impressions, it was interesting. I'm going to finish it. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, I'm not sold on fantasy, mm-hmm. but uh, I'll, give it a, I'll give it a try. So mm. that's where I'm at. Yeah, I can talk about my first impressions in terms of things that I really love about this book and then things that I don't quite love, uh, many of which I think will get flushed out in later discussion. Um, so things I, I really love about this book is like benevolent vampirism, like this this vampirism that is imagined as exchange and mutuality, I think, which is incredibly different than the vampire stories that I normally read, aka white vampire stories. Um, you know, that are either about excess or abstinence, both of which always come with the sense of like, um, white angst and shame. Mm. And so this construction was really refreshing to read and it makes me want to read more black vampire tales. This is actually the first, uh, black vampire story I've ever read. Um, and I also really love the sense of found family. It is, it is a trope that I return to always cause I just love it so much. Um, and there's a good amount of introspection that I can really appreciate and get down with. And I really like introspective characters and surprisingly for a book that is, that has its beginnings in slavery. Like there's a lot of joy and tenderness that pervades the story, which again is like very distinct from a lot of angsty vampire tales. Um, and then, and then I think last, but most importantly, something that I really love about this book is, is his queerness. And I definitely mean that in the sense that the main character is a, a black bisexual woman, um, who is herself a bad bitch and is also pulling bad bitches across, across history, you know, across time, across (laughs) all of it. It's fantastic. And I, but I also mean queer in the sense of this different relationship to time and space and people, which Gomez talks a lot about in in the afterward. So that out of the way, things that I I don't love about this book, this book is very character driven rather than plot driven. And that is, um, so what that means is like, there's no overarching plots or external conflict, which is totally fine for me if the character develops significantly for better or worse over the course of the book. And I don't feel like Gilda does. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that. Yeah. And some of that might just be like the narration. I think it's weirdly distant, despite 
the fact that Gilda's interiority is such a key element of the book. We spend a lot of time in her own subjectivity, but I still feel like a lot of her desires were muted and obscured throughout the book, especially her sexual desires, which I think we'll talk about later. Um, And I think throughout the book, it was even unclear to me how she like ended up in these different occupations over the course of history. They never felt very clearly connected to who she was or what she loved or what she cared about. Um, and I don't really feel like I left the book with a clear sense of who Gilda was, even though I feel like that is very important to Gomez. Like, I think the writer really wanted us to have a clear sense of, of that. Um, and then maybe like another sort of thing that I wanted more from the book or didn't get enough of, it just felt like the, the chapters were the same. Like they thought fo- they follow the same pattern. Mm. Um, and there was also this sense of like placelessness throughout the book, like the, the locations, mm-hmm should be important and theoretically are important because the the chapters are are organized not only by like the shift in time but also the shift in place like they take place in one city or one town specifically um but i think you could have easily like swapped out one place for another and it wouldn't have changed the story Mm -hmm. at all or even the period that much so i think i wanted more a more groundedness in a particular um, space or time that I didn't always get. So those are my like initial broad outlines or impressions of the book. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I think this was the first. <laughs> I think this was the first. <laughs> um, like black woman vampire main character. Uh, book that I've read and all of the fantasy books that I've read. So a lot of my first impressions were just like delight mm. at the the possibility to navigate a story like this and to think about like what it would mean to be a powered individual, a powered character throughout like African-American history. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read a number of books at this point that have like taken place in various like African countries, realistic or fictional but this was the first time I read this. This was the first. I was like, "Here's what it could look like through the eyes of like African American." Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so the book starts in 1850. Um, so that's like you know, <laughs> that's a specific point in American mm-hmm. history in Louisiana in the South. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, first impressions were just like wonder at like I was like very much early in reading books by black women, loving the discussion of like their descriptions of bodies and skin and hair. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of my first impressions were actually just positive because of the like newness of it for me and the novelty. I definitely felt that. I, yeah. So I'll just say now, like I definitely had a question that felt odd and I was trying to like place it of like, Oh, it, it does seem like, her drive her passions are not clear um Mm -hmm. in in the where she ends up the careers that she ends up taking decade after decade or even yeah in her relationships or or i should say there's one persistent sort of questioning relationship that we'll talk about more that she has with a like companion Mm -hmm. and it's even weird to me that that's the big question of her life for like over a century Mm-hmm. Um, so it just, it, yeah, it seems, I agree with Tia. Like it does kind of feel like, I don't really know who, um, Gilda is, but I think it's more of like, if this were a TV show, I would say it's just concept driven. 
Mm-hmm. Like the, mm-hmm. the idea is okay. Here's a story about a black vampire, you know, who is made into a vampire in the 1850s, mm-hmm. and what that could look like for 200 years. And like this is that idea fleshed out yeah. less than it's called the Gilda story. So you would think we'd get a lot more depth of this character, mm-hmm. and it does. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like we do. Right. Um. So. <laughs> Speaking on that, uh, as you can, if you can think back, like, what were some of your thoughts or impressions of the girl? So the main character, Gilda, is actually not referred to as such until I think either the very end of the first chapter or the beginning of the second chapter. So the whole 1850, her life in Louisiana, she's just referred to as the girl because the vampire who turns her is named Gilda. Mm-hmm. And there's an exchange essentially that happened. I wrote in my notes like Gilda for Gilda. Like mm-hmm. the the one who turned her was an old, an ancient vampire. In some shows, they call that like an old one. And she's she's weary of life. She's chosen to take on what they call the true death. Mm-hmm. And our main character Gilda assumes not like her identity, but like takes her name at least mm-hmm. um, and becomes Gilda throughout the rest of the story. So it, there's this deep way that it feels like that original Gilda, the white Gilda like gave life to the black Gilda mm-hmm. who becomes our heroine. And I had feelings about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yes. So anyway, <laughs> to you, what, what are some of your thoughts on girl or the girl? respond to the feelings <laughs> around that because mm-hmm. I was like why does she have a name and then I found out she was black and I was like oh <laughs> what are we doing here I don't like this it's supposed to be fantasy we don't have to abide by these rules and right. now mm-hmm. this black girl ain't got no name mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that was off-putting to me because she felt important mm-hmm. important enough to be one of the first people that we meet um, obviously she because when I first started the book I was like where is this going like, I don't understand <laughs> yeah and you don't really know who the main character is at that point mm. right but I was like you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna hope that this girl has some significance throughout the book <laughs> so <laughs> I was like I'm gonna stay with her I was like oh she killed a white man yes um, so, <laughs> like, white racist rapist bounty hunter man okay. correct um very particular kinds escaping a plantation right. correct okay so <laughs> um so i have feelings about how she has this really intense experience at the beginning of the book and she ain't got no name and then she takes on gilda's and i was like why can't the girl have her own name like she's her own person um and so but i thought she was really intriguing to me because she seems so opposite Gilda and it's just like sticking to doing her own thing um, for a while. Um, she gets to know the women in the house that she ends up in, which is Woodard's. Um, but it, it bothered me that she had no identity, like no name and names mm-hmm. are really important to me. Right. I'm like, I'm just going to call her the girl the whole time. Okay. It gets tiring. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so um but I uh yeah, those are my um initial thoughts about her. Yeah. 
I have very similar feelings about the namelessness of that character in the beginning, particularly because the the title of the book is The Gilda Stories. So yeah, that that transition of the the name Gilda, and I guess it's a, a transition of perhaps power and knowledge. Like it's a it's an epistemological transfer too, right? It's a, the, hmm. that this this woman, the original Gilda, who is a white woman, her her knowledge of <laughs> of time and space and people gets passed on to this um the, the girl is what she's called in the beginning of the book but there is a way and i i didn't like that and i i kind of wish that the original vampire was not a white woman and white womanhood is is an interesting feature in this text there's another white female character that i i'm sure we'll talk about at some point um oh yes yeah 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 she's, and and quite frankly i think is the most interesting character in the book but oh yikes yeah um we'll get to that too but so but there was a a way in which um the girl who becomes gilda is uh characterized as a very sort of like quiet and observant there's a the way a a way that she's special right like there's a a specialness Mm. to her at least in the way that like the original gilda talks about her like she will be the best of us she will She's, there's a way that she's able to sort of handle this this life as a vampire. And I was down with that, mostly because I'm so used to, in fantasy, um, I'm, I guess I'm directing specifically to Aljo and other listeners who are not, <laughs> you know, avid readers of fantasy, but there's a trope, and I'm sure you've mm. seen this in lots of films. Special the white one, child. Exactly, the special <laughs> white child, the one who will lead us all, the one who is the chosen one. Um, that always refers to like, yeah, you know, you, you're very familiar with this because it's such a common recurrence in, in film and television. And so for it to be, I mean, in some ways it doesn't quite work because the, the, the story doesn't have enough of a narrative for that to be true, but, hmm. um, or rather I'll say an overarching plot has plenty of narrative, but I think that it was nice to have this, the girl that, that felt similar hmm. to me in the sense of the chosen one, but there is a way, right. That she gets subsumed into this, this larger identity of Gilda, who is, you know, originally a white woman. And I, I'm curious about why Gomez chose that for, you know, the, the second Gilda, (laughs) the main Gilda, I would say. Um, But yeah, yeah, I definitely wanted her to have a name and perhaps, and I like the point that you make Audrey about, I guess it's fantasy. We actually don't have to recuperate or like replicate real life in the sense that yeah like obviously like slaves were denied names all the time and they had to take on white names Mm -hmm. so that makes a lot of sense to me but also yeah there was a way in which that just didn't have to be true in this book because it is fantasy and something could have been different that could have been different um so yeah i'm ambivalent about that in the one sense i'm like yeah she she was the girl feels very much like the chosen one to me and then the other sense i'm like wow she gotta have his white lady name Okay. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, why couldn't she be Gladys? You know, just Gladys. something else. You love <laughs> <Bueller> anything. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm really glad that you said the thing about like the special white girl trope because um, I, I think venturing into fantasy novels, I needed a framework to help me see like, oh, okay. People have done this before. Mm-hmm. And so you 
saying that connected something for me because I really like Stranger Things. So, <laughs> and then it may, and if you haven't seen it, then you should see it. Also, stop listening if you haven't seen Stranger <laughs> Things. And stop listening to this podcast if you haven't read this book. But I'm still here. Um, <laughs> the girl, Eleven, she's just this random mm-hmm. white girl mm-hmm. yep. and she doesn't really have a name. Yeah. Other than the name that's like given to her and she's weird and, you know, powers and things. But it was just that was really helpful and connected some things for me. Mm. So that might actually help me to engage better now that I remember to actually do like some fantasy things. You do. Um, Many would argue that Stranger Things is science fiction, but that's okay. It's okay. No, no, no. It's okay. It's okay because I think that the, the 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 binary or the dichotomy between science fiction and fantasy is often very nebulous um, mm. and like irrelevant, quite frankly. So, like Marvel, for instance, like I would argue that Marvel is both fantasy and science fiction. Like it has magic systems. It also yep. has incredible technology and things that can be explained by science. So, my point is, is that yeah, the the distinction between the two is. Who cares? Who cares? So what's interesting about um, all that y'all just said, and I'm, I'm tracking with you, is there's a. It is true that fantasy means uh, un, unboundedness to uh, anything in reality, right? Um, so we could have. So in fiction, there's a term that's called high fiction, mm-hmm. and it's it's like an entirely created world. Nothing about what's in this story uh, adheres to or needs to adhere to like true Earth history or really anything about human, you know, humanity as is. Um, this is not high fiction. So like Harry Potter, for example, uh, which might be mm-hmm. something you're all more. Uh, familiar with is not high fiction right like or high fantasy sorry high fantasy is the term um harry potter takes place you know in this hidden world within the real world um that there are places in london that you could go to that connects to the magical world Mm -hmm. but like there's still london as we understand it um so this this is in that same category right like it's um there's the world as we understand it. There's history as we understand it. There's Louisiana in 1850 as we understand it. And yeah. so because of, I don't, I don't know if that's like a sub, let's say if it's a sub genre of fantasy, hmm. then maybe the idea that like, it's this white woman in 1850 who, you know, through her benevolence, you know, finds this black girl and like brings her in as annoying as that narrative is in 2021. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like high fantasy, it might kind of have to go that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, you know, it's a choice. She made a choice to not make this a high fantasy story about vampires in some totally created world, uh, yeah. like Game of Thrones or whatever, yeah. right? There's dragons. Um, but it's inter- so this is my second time reading it. And what's interesting is, again, I think the first read through, I just was like in awe of finally finding something like this. And then this mm-hmm. time, and again, rereading it in 2021 with the world as it is, and I just like, I was like, how come girl don't have her own name? How come she got to be named by this white woman? How mm-hmm. come, she, you know, we t- it's like all that was, was within me in 2021 reading it. And so it's, it's also just, it's like making me want to reread some books that I have loved in the past again. Cause it's like, man, I don't know. Lots of things have shifted and changed mm-hmm. in myself and in the world. So maybe my, uh, interpretation of or my ability to even like stomach 
this narrative is going to shift. Because I have that same issue with some some like white TV shows. It's like when that mm-hmm. show came out, I loved it. I was also like 13 and just watching what was ever on cable. Yeah. But now I'm like, there are no black characters in eight seasons of this show. I cannot watch this okay. again. Yeah. Yeah. So we all grow and shift. <laughs> yep. Um, could I ask a favor? So as we talk about fantasy, could you name some other popular examples, whether TV, <laughs> books? Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, to help those of us, I feel like I'm speaking for the collective that's yeah. like, fantasy, right. what's that? Mm-hmm. Um, that would help people kind of place you know, oh, yeah. I actually have interactions mm-hmm. with fantasy. Yeah. 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 I mean, Twilight is a, a huge, I mean, a, perhaps the most mm. accessible example of like vampire fantasy, very much that about. Takes place in the world. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that would be, you know, familiar, whether, in, you know, warmly embraced or not, but is <laughs> very familiar to many people. Um True Blood is another, like, I'm just thinking of, like, mm-hmm. vampire fantasies. True Blood is interesting, though, because I think it is very much, again, a blend of fantasy and science fiction. Like, they do have magical powers. They're, fa- they're fairies and things like that, like fae. Oh. Very magical. But there is, like, a, a science fiction element in that, you know, at some point in the series, both in the book and in the, the television show, they develop synthetic blood. So it's very much about, like, science and technology, things like that. Uh-huh. Um, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think True Blood is an excellent example of Southern fiction, first of all, and then, you know, vampire fiction. <laughs> um, I mean, I think... Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Exactly, for sure. I guess that would be firmly in fantasy. I don't know if there are too many sci-fi elements within Buffy. There's a cyborg in one season, and it's the worst well, season. there it is. But, well, uh... never mind. <laughs> never mind. What about... Um... Lord of the Rings? Fantasy. Like, so Lord of the Rings is high fantasy. High fantasy. Oh, like, okay, okay. Middle Earth, as much as people might say, like Middle Earth is not Europe in the 1300s. Like mm-hmm. it is an entirely different world uh, that is has no tie to any of the rules that we adhere okay. to in real life. So everything Tia mentioned, I don't know what the opposite or the like the other version of, like it's not high fantasy, it's this. But everything like Tia mentioned are this in the same category as the Gilda stories. It's mm-hmm. you're supposed to believe. That's why I kept saying like it could happen. Mm-hmm. Who knows? It's like these even like The Walking Dead. It's like this could be happening around you or you know in the shadows and you don't notice or you don't know, right? Like mm-hmm. the links that they go through in this story to like protect the secret of their existence could suggest that like your neighbor could also be a, you know, could be a vampire and you wouldn't know it because obviously they're trying to keep that a secret or, you know, in the Harry Potter world, they're muggles Mm -hmm. who like don't know what's going on with magic. So like we're the muggles, right? Mm -hmm. All of this could be happening around us. Someone could have put a memory charm on you this morning. Mm -hmm. I don't see that's that's the thing (laughs) I don't like. Okay. (laughs) That's the part about fantasy that feels hard to engage, but that's really helpful, and I hope yeah. that's helpful to the listeners about how do I locate this story right. uh, in this genre. I also want to yeah. say to any white men listening, do, don't do come in our mentions trying to make clear distinctions between like 
fantasy and science fiction because no white white sci-fi nerds white male sci-fi nerds and white male like fantasy nerds get really touchy about like the distinctions and what makes this this kind of magic system and this sort of thing i don't want to hear it we're not interested don't do it i'm here to tell you we don't care (laughs) we don't care (laughs) don't do it i don't want to hear it Start your own podcast as you are okay. want to do. Correct. Okay, moving on. So um, for, you know, again, ultra new to the genre, Tia, I think, didn't know in reading it that this was going to be a vampire story. No. So um, I'm, I'm wondering what the experience was like for you for the lore mm-hmm. of, like, Gomez's world of vampirism unfolding. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the, the rules here are, are a little different. Mm-hmm. Then we usually see the, um, the sort of the weaknesses, the strengths, mm-hmm. uh, what it means to be who they are or what they are is, is unique, I think, to this story. Even in the first chapter, we see this idea of home soil. Yes. So is this way that I, I think it's where the soil of where you were turned into a vampire, not oh. the soil of where you as a human were born. Okay. I think. Okay. But basically, so yeah, if you're made into a vampire in Louisiana in some city, like you need the soil of that place with you, on you, sewn into your clothes, sewn into your uh, comforter at night to help strengthen you from mm-hmm. like the weakening effects of the sun. Yeah, um, it's how they sort of secure and shore themselves up. And so, like, that's, I think, the only bit of the vampire lore that kind of gets unfolded in the first chapter. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what, what are some of your thoughts or what were some of your early thoughts of, like, how that unfolded? Yeah, I mean, I imagine that my discussion of the lore will extend beyond chapter one. But <laughs> I, mm. yeah, I mean, I love so much of this lore and in this universe. We never find out exactly, like, where vampirism started in this universe, but that never felt right. relevant to me as I was reading. So I'm okay with that being mysterious and illegible. I mean, again, the idea of this mutual exchange is very interesting and subversive. I, I think especially at the time of this book's release, which is in 1991. Um, mm. And maybe some vampire experts will correct me on that. There might be many literary <laughs> examples, many you know literary or televisual examples of this type of vampirism. I just have not read them or, or seen them. Um, yeah. but I'm, I'm firmly coming from like the era of interview of the vampire, um, <laughs> you know, which is like a film that came out, I think in like 1994, but it's based off of Anne Rice's 1976 novel, obviously Buffy, which didn't come around until 1997. And then there's the vampire diaries, which is now like a, a popular well-known <sighs> show, but I don't think many people realize that the original book actually came out in 1991, which is the same oh. year. Yes. Which is the same year that the Gilda stories oh. came out. Um, teach, teach well, 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 well. Um, and if you read the books, it's clear that they were written in the 90s, the early 90s. Um, and that's not a shade. It's just like there's, you know, a, a noticeable lack of certain technology. Um, oh, yeah. And like certain fashion trends. You're like, interesting. Um, but but those are circling back in 2021. So ha, ha, ha. But obviously, of course, <laughs> who would have thought? Um, and then, of course, there's like Twilight and True Blood. But I think at the heart of these stories is the the angsty, sad, self indulgent white vampire who like has very similar powers to the ones um, in the Gilda stories, like telepathy mm-hmm. and immortality and like super speed strength. But they use their powers very differently, and I think 
they are often using their powers to either dominate or persuade or, or coerce or lure. Mm. Um, and vampires in this book, at least the, the good ones, hold an <laughs> ethos that is, is very different than that. Um, and this is actually a quote from like right after Gilda's transformation. So this, this might actually be in chapter two and not one, but um, it says she did not need to struggle to remember the words of caution about her power or to remain aware of the one with whom she shared. The exchange had become an important part of her living and of her understanding of those who remained mortal. Uh, and so, yeah, like this idea of exchange continues to you know be a thread throughout the book. And I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that a writer who identifies as a queer black feminist would write vampires in this way. Right. Especially when the two central vampires are a black and an indigenous woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think the concept of a home soil, you know, which Thurston mentioned, they like sew into their clothes and sleep in as protection, I think falls right in line with that black feminist sensibility, right? The, The retention of their power in part comes from carrying home whatever that means Mm -hmm. to them with them across space and time. Like they are carrying this, not just as they're moving around the country or across the world, but across like different periods in time. Mm -hmm. And that feels really meaningful for characters like Gilda and bird bird is um, an indigenous vampire who have experienced varying degrees of displacement and dispossession and homelessness. Um, And so, yeah, the home soil makes sense to me. I love a lot of that lore, but I, I think that being said, there is like a glaring, consent issue in in this exchange between the vampire Mm. and the human um which then maybe means that it's not quite as mutual right so humans are not often consenting to having their blood drawn um Mm. or taken it's not drawn it's taken (laughs) you know they're not getting anybody um and i don't think there's ever really a single instance of that being consensual which i think is really interesting and adds a differently textured conflict but it's never really explored in the book Um, And so much of this is posed as a kind of mutuality, but can something be mutual without it being consensual? I would say no. Um, And I think that that's a rich conflict, but I think that the book needs more of that conflict or I wanted it to be more to the surface rather than this thing that's sort of existing um, underneath. And then I think maybe regarding the lore, there's a way that they're, abilities still feel vague to me like Gomez doesn't always seem that interested in highlighting like uh the development of those powers or the the intricacies and mechanics of their powers um and I wish she would have but I also like that just doesn't seem to be the point of her book right and it's not necessarily high fantasy so the the quote-unquote magic system doesn't matter all that much um and then I think there were just moments where I like just wanted Gilda to have better skill with her powers um, yeah. Not necessarily with humans. She's very adept at like taking blood from humans and giving something back. And often when she's giving something back, it's like she's perceiving their like dreams or inclinations and she'll either like massage that and like make it stronger. Or if they're having a very pleasant dream, she'll sort of magnify that and like give them joy or whatever. But um, it felt like when she came up against other vampires, she was always kind of clumsy and never seemed interested in honing her abilities. And of course that might just be mm. because Gilda was not particularly interested in in dwelling with vampires, which I imagine will come up again later. Um, 
But I will say that compared to a, a litany of, of vampire stories where the central, you know, white vampire is almost always just a little bit too powerful and invulnerable, <laughs> this this Gilda's clumsiness, so to speak, is at least that's how I'm thinking of it, might be a really nice change of pace for, for readers. So, yeah, those are my, like, thoughts about the lore and their power and their history as vampires. Yeah. Audra, any thoughts? As you're, I mean, in some ways, I feel like maybe you're even learning a thing like, what are vampires? I don't know. I don't know how much. You know. <laughs> but, but actually, that unfolds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I tried to like show up to this like almost like a blank slate. Like, let me just clear away. Like it was baggage or, you know, preconceived thoughts about what vampires are, because I'm like, I'm going to let this author redefine for me what that is, because I'm making a re-entry into fantasy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was something intriguing about the way that vampires show up in this book, because they weren't white. So, (laughs) um, (laughs) and so it was... I was like, oh, I feel like I can be at ease because so much of whiteness feels so consuming or so like we're just going to take, take, take. And um, the idea of an exchange felt a little bit freeing, but to Tia's point, like it didn't always feel like it was a full exchange. Mm. Like, what are you giving back? Like, uh, Yeah, anyway. Um, And then there's just so many moments where I was just caught off guard. Like I said before, when I first learned how old Gilda was, I was like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean? Um, and um, when she, I think I was just like tickled on like, this is in my book, page 16, where um, uh, the girl is eating and like, she's been brought to Woodard's and is like kind of settling in. And Gilda's just like observing her and the girl, it says the girl thought for a moment, this is a man, a little man. And then Gilda laughs out loud. I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, and she like responds audibly to the girl's thoughts, which I thought was really interesting. (laughs) Um, And that doesn't feel consensual. Um, Mm -mm. There was a chapter, I think it was chapter three. I think, yeah, I think in chapter three, Gilda um, is talking to Eleanor and, or somebody, and her thoughts are being read and she's like, my thoughts were the safest place for me prior to this or something to that effect. Oh, yeah, I definitely think that's Eleanor, chapter two. Okay, yeah, and I I felt bothered by some of these powers because Hmm. I think because I really value my own space and having, <laughs> you know, a boundary around the things I'm thinking or feeling. Uh, some people would like that boundary to be more penetrable, um, <laughs> but I, I don't want it to be. Um, it, it was annoying to me. And I felt like, Oh, that's not fair. Mm. Like what if Gilda just wants a day where like nobody bothers her and she right. does do whatever she wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just so much responsibility when you have all these powers. Yeah. Yeah. That feels like a lot of work that I'm not being paid for. So <laughs> I, 
<laughs> you know, that's free labor. And Gilda was trying to get away from this damn plantation. And now I'm mad all over again. Um, but the powers just feel a bit too weighty mm. to me. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But I find them intriguing. I don't think I ever want to be able to read people's thoughts. <laughs> ever. Yeah. I so desperately want to be able to read people's thoughts. Oof. I'm so curious. I am so, so curious when I'm in public. I'm just, you know, not even for any nefarious or weird reason. I just, I've like, I feel like I've always just been like, you know, what motivations, like what's going on there? What's behind that look? Why the heck did you decide to do that? Mm. Um, those kinds of questions are just always on my mind. Do you feel, can I ask a question about that, that desire for telepathy? Is that, yeah. is that like a, is, <laughs> is that a desire from like you as an individual as Thurston, you're just very curious about the, the inner life of people or is that as a black man in, in varying white spaces, you're curious about what people are thinking of you or like being able to sort of predict people's behavior might be a measure of safety. It, it might not be that deep. I'm just curious. Right. Yeah. You're deep. That's, it's not the, the Negro double consciousness. Beautiful. Of, okay. Like, am I safe? What's there going on? It, it, I think it precedes my awareness of that like depth of like ethnic and racial reality in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I, I spent a lot of time by myself growing up, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that makes me sometimes. So I have, I have an older sibling. She's like five years older than me. And I don't know. I, I think the time that I spent with people was always specific mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't have the opportunity to just kind of like, I feel like there's a way that you can observe the inner world of someone that you spend a lot of like downtime with. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get to have that. And so gener- genuinely, I'm like often t- just curious, like, what's going through that person's mind? Mm-hmm. Um, what are their motivations? There's a way that I feel like even a lot of the people that I like have known for a long time in my life, it's like, I don't know what their like inner world is like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the like attractive things about all these personality tests that we cycle through is like yeah. some of them speak to like internal motivation. Yeah. Like here's how you and another person who have made the same decision or come to the same place in the world um, have like arrived here from very different paths because you have different mm-hmm. motivations. Yeah. So yeah, more of the former, not at all like the latter, like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm concerned about white people and mm-hmm. am I safe all the time? Yeah. Which I'm, you know, I'm like, yeah, not everything is about white people, white Beautiful. people. Mm. <laughs> might okay. <laughs> Let it be a lesson to you. <laughs> Love it. Um, yeah. So <laughs> along those lines, I think <laughs> in my second, in my, again, in my second reading, I'm like, oh, if, it seems like Gomez is able to avoid slavery as like mm. a thing by starting the story in 1850 but mm-hmm. like specifically holding it within like this brothel that uh white gilda owns and then jumping the story to 1890 mm-hmm. and what's referred to as yerba buena which i'm pretty sure is san francisco um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. before it's called san francisco uh so you know that's the aftermath of the civil war it's out west like there there's just a way that i feel like she skirted around a pretty significant point in history mm-hmm. which is again interesting because the story is about a black woman 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we got to see a black woman in the 1800s and not have to engage slavery much after, of course, Gilda's escape from slavery. Um, so I'm wondering if, um, yeah, I just do, does it feel like something is missing in, in y'all's reading of it? Did it feel like something was missing there that should have been in the story? Or is it like, as we were saying earlier, like, well, it's fantasy, so we don't actually have to, you know, have a whole slavery arc in the story. Mm -hmm. I have an answer to that. I'm happy to like go, but I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be the two fantasy nerds. (laughs) (laughs) Just attacking Jumping back and forth every time. Exactly. I think I could go Yes, please. Um, I think that was where I wanted that's where I felt the most conflict in engaging fantasy because I wanted the freedom of fantasy to take over Mm. and like erase that time period let's not even be influenced by it you know Mm -hmm. um but then I was like that feels not genuine and I'm also thinking back to our conversations when we were talking about home going Mm -hmm. and talking about uh, blackness and what is blackness mm-hmm. and like that's a question that's on my mind all the time because right. obviously there, it's like influenced by our history but it that's not the only thing about us um, mm-hmm. but it did feel a little like so <sighs> I'm such a rule follower that I'm like what can y'all do you know <laughs> what are y'all allowed to do right now you know <laughs> Is somebody going to get snatched up? You know, so yeah. I just, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I just have a lot of questions about that. And um, I felt a little ungrounded mm-hmm. because I didn't know how to deal with, I really love, not love. <laughs> Reality's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I like real things. <laughs> yeah. And I don't always know how to, uh, I don't always have an imagination for Mm. not this, Mm -hmm. what we're sitting in right now. Yeah. Um, So it did feel like something was missing, but maybe it needs to be missing um, for me to enjoy this book. Mm -hmm. Maybe. That's an unfinished thought, but. That's fair. No, that's good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is there's a way that I feel like a story about a black woman in the 1800s or that starts there that doesn't really engage the trauma of slavery mm-hmm. feels like high fantasy. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. But, but again, the story is not high fantasy. It's just there. She Gomez is able to skip around that mm-hmm. with her placement in time and in space or geography. Um, and yeah. I, and I think that's why it, there was a question in my mind of like, oh, how do I feel about her skipping that? Mm. When it's a real part of like the world as we know it. Mm-hmm. And she is housing her story within the world as we know it. Yeah. Um, but this is kind of, I would say, the least traumatic of all the books that, you know, the, the books we've read so far. Certainly. Which is weird to think about one because of when it started. Yeah. The thing that I'll add to that, I know Tia, you had something to say, but I just, I was just, I think a lot of things are connecting for me. 
But the thing that's really annoying is that in the in 1850, the person that rescues the girl is a white woman. So it's mm-hmm. like, are we now getting a white savior story <laughs> about how she rescued this little black girl from mm-hmm. Apollo Hay? yeah i don't like that yeah um and it i feel like and i i'm probably just bringing this up because of a recent incident i had but it feels like a a rewriting of history and i'm like whatever you're doing i don't know who said it but whatever you're doing right now is what you would have been doing Mm. back when whatever Mm -hmm. was happening Mm -hmm. aka slavery Mm -hmm. so and I, I feel very annoyed by the fact that this is the white woman gets to in some way be a hero mm-hmm. by saving this black girl. I'm like, that's not what you would be doing. A- 1850. Mm-hmm. You can't act like, you know, you can't denounce critical race theory in 2021, but act like you would have been an abolitionist. Mm-hmm. Okay. 50. It don't yeah. work like that, homie. Yeah. Right. And the incident that's making me think of this is I was like speaking at an event and a white woman interrupted me. <gasps> When I was talking, yeah. like, yes. Oh, that's why um, the question. Yeah. Um, because who gets interrupted while they're speaking to an audience? Not me. black women. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the point that I was making had history involved and in talking about how silence is violent mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all of that. And this white woman did not like that. So she interrupted. <laughs> to, the first thing out of her mouth was... Well, not all white people. And I'm like, but Uh, enough of, right. And enough of them didn't do the right thing, which is why we're here. So I just feel some type of way about this white woman in 1850 being seen as somehow this benevolent person. But I'm like, I just don't think that's likely. That's fair. Yeah, I. Yeah. Go ahead, Thurston, where you got to say something. Um, I think I was, I was going to say that there's a reality. Well, I agree with everything Audra said. I think there's a way that some people in very individual, supremely specific scenarios would have quote unquote done the right thing, even as they would not have been someone to like fight a system. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I don't like that I said that because I was like, I'm not really caping for this white woman. Right. So oh, no. whatever. Like, it's just, it's interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we could think, so the lore, right? Like, well, this is a 300-year-old person. Yeah. Yes, a white woman. But we can say and hope that maybe the length of life, you know, gives her some lessons, gives her some wisdom, gives her some compassion mm-hmm. that moves her to, at the very least, be able to care for a you know, t- scared, frightened young girl that she finds in the hay. Like, mm-hmm. like it, it feels bare minimum that it's, mm-hmm. it, it, I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Like, she's not, she's not an abolitionist. Like, White Gilda is not abolitionist. White Gilda is not fighting the system. She's mm-hmm. not performing some kind of justice movement on the side of race. Like, you could say that her work as, like, an owner of this brothel that, like, treats, treats these women fairly, like, that, that in and of itself is, a good thing on mm-hmm. the gender side. Yeah. Um, mm. But it does. Yeah. It just, I'm like, mm, it's not that huge of a leap to say like, you found a young girl scared and bathed in blood in a barn mm-hmm. and you didn't like 
kill her or turn her in. Like that's so bare, ba- so, so right. like bare minimum. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I don't think it says white savior. Mm-hmm. I don't really white savior to that because I'm just like that's the bare minimum. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's helpful. I have the sense from a lot of the book, and I think this is particularly true. I think it's chapter four, maybe it's chapter five. That's in the '70s with Julius. But there's a way, I think to your point, Thurston, about like, oh, this is this white vampire woman who has been alive for a very long time. There's a way in which um, I think Gomez presents vampirism as transcending human issues. And what counts as a human issue is racism, right, or misogyny, Mm. which is why Gilda largely feels insulated from those things throughout the book. Um, Mm. And I completely agree with you, right, that like, the white, the first Gilda, the white Gilda, is not an abolitionist. She's, she, you know, she's not combating <laughs> slavery or systemic injustice. But I think she's just so over humanity. Period. And the sort of, I think maybe what she might consider petty squabbles of humanity that she's willing to. For her, it makes perfect sense to take in this this young black child who's come from slavery, even if she doesn't really give a fuck about slavery. And I don't think she does. I don't think there's any hint in that. <laughs> um, and I think we really, we see that in Gilda when she's talking to Julius, who I think we'll get to at some point. Um, yeah. But what I will say about the, the slavery question is, I, yeah, I'm just glad that Gilda's adulthood is, is post-slavery because, though for sure, I think like the specter of slavery lingers over the whole book. And I think very much explains in some ways Gilda's restlessness, which I don't think she ever really gets over. But... Um, <laughs> the last page, the last page. <laughs> right, Exactly. Um, and so in that way, right, the specter of slavery, I think that Gomez is very much writing in the Afro-pessimist tradition in which a lot of scholars and thinkers are, are thinking about how, right, like slavery has followed us and will continue to follow us. There's no escaping that. Though I do think that the latter chapters are, which are set in 2020, (laughs) wow, ironic, and 2050, respectively, are very Afro-futurist, but I think the, the avoidance of like, Dwelling in slavery is is nice, and my heart is thankful because I am I am so fucking exhausted by black trauma, presently and always. And right. <laughs> I think everything we need to know about Gilda's past in slavery can be told through flashback, which it often is, or through her descriptions or impressions, vague as I often find them. Um, and so, all that to say, I, I think the story remains. The story even without having begun like on a plantation in a field but there is something i think missing from the story and i think that's just stakes right like what are the stakes really mm. what, what is at risk mm. and that's like a larger issue i have with this book is um i certainly don't mind the lack of trauma and i assume that by like and we're or rather like the avoidance of slavery and link that to black trauma and like racism and misogyny yeah, that doesn't take up a lot of space in, in the book mm-hmm. period. Um, and as I mentioned, I think Gilda feels very insulated from those things. And that's fine. I'm like, I'm, I'm cool with that. Like, <laughs> She's a vampire. She is more powerful than any human. Um, she's even sort of insulated from capitalism. Or she participates in it. And she got a whole bunch of money, right? Like, she's not poor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's accumulated a lot of wealth over, you know, hundreds of years. And she relates to time and space very differently, even as she carries the trauma of slavery with her. And so I'm fine with racism not being the conflict, but I still needed more conflict 
in the book. And so for me, that's the thing that is missing a lot. Maybe, I mean, I think there's a lot of internal conflict, but I would argue not really. Um, yeah. But I, I think I, I, yeah, there's not a lot of like trauma from the slavery or like conflict relating to slavery or even racism, but I, I, I needed more. The thing that was missing for me was like conflict and, and stakes. So. Yeah. So Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm, um, classic. Coined coined the phrase the big bad. Yeah. Um, and that bears itself out in a lot of fantasy and sci-fi TV shows, which is either or a lot shows typically have both. There's an episode of there's a um oh it's it's called I think it's called Monster of the Week or it's something yes. of the week. Yeah, yeah. But it's basically each episode has a villain and yeah. then each season has this overarching plot that and like a big bad yeah. who's the villain for the season. And really good shows can also add, like, there's an episode, there's a villain every week, there's a villain every season, a bigger villain every season, and a greater villain that's, like, the seven-season-long villain. Yeah. Um, mm. That's difficult to do. Marvel did that really well with Thanos. Very well, yeah. Um, each, each movie had its own villain. Also, it, it all point, 20-plus movies all pointed to one epic battle mm. with, this, <laughs> with this one particular villain anyway yeah. i say all that to say this book has neither mm-hmm. there's not a villain in each city yep that she's mm-hmm. fighting there's a there's some level of a conflict but sometimes that's just like relational angst yeah um i'm thinking about when she's like in missouri and it's really just about like should she turn this woman mm-hmm. or not yeah they're close but it seems like this woman has a connection to life that Gilda doesn't want to pull her away from. Yeah. Um, and then, so yeah, there's not like a, a big villain for every sort of city and, and time that she finds herself within. There's also not an over, overarching villain. Yeah. Um, there's mm-hmm. one who you might have thought was going to become the overarching villain, mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't happen. Or I would say there are probably two characters that you maybe could have thought like were going to become that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of whom is Eleanor. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it is played out in just in chapter two that like maybe, so Eleanor is the first, um, I guess, I don't know what, the first white woman vampire that Gilda meets after white Gilda. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is 1890. She's in what is now called San Francisco. She meets Anthony mm-hmm. Sorel or Sorrel. I think in my head, I always pronounce it Sorel. Mm-hmm. She meets Anthony Sorel, Samuel and Eleanor. Yeah. Um, Anthony and Sorrel kind of own and operate this bar in San Francisco and the, this fiery redhead mm-hmm. uh, described in Eleanor <gasps> is maybe the first. Well, yeah. So what do y'all think? Like, is Eleanor the villain or is Samuel the villain? What, what do you think of Eleanor? What's going on? Eleanor, her narcissism, how everyone, it's very interesting to me how everyone relates to Eleanor. Like, it's almost like, she is the focal point of that chapter mm-hmm. and everyone else is like the spoke um, sort of branching out from the center of Eleanor. Mm-hmm. What, how was Eleanor to y'all? And I think it's worth noting that Eleanor is Gilda's first love interest. She has several throughout the text. Facts. Cause Facts. She's, you know, she's just moving through time. <laughs> um, <laughs> she's, she's going to live a long life. I think is it makes perfect sense for her to fall in love with multiple people. So Eleanor is, mm-hmm. I think the first well, we can talk about Bird later. I think there's a question, Thurston, you had about Bird. I, yeah, but Eleanor, I think maybe 
could be the first love interest. I mean, so first of all, be careful around white women. <laughs> okay. Can't trust them. Didn't trust her from the beginning. Yeah. Okay. I already knew she was trouble. <laughs> I already knew. Um, and I say that, but I, I do think actually that Eleanor is one of the more interesting characters in the book, probably because she isn't overly moralistic, which adds nice mm-hmm. conflict. And I think the book needed more of that, which I've already said. Um, and I think maybe this goes back to my my issue with distant narration, because it was really hard to care about the other vampires. <laughs> and sometimes it was kind of hard to, to care about Gilda too, quite frankly. Um, but characters like, I always say Sorel too, because that sounds more black to me, even though I'm pretty sure Sorel <laughs> is white. Pretty sure he's a, he's a white man. Super white. <laughs> um, I think he's white yeah. partly. Yeah. Yeah. Like sweaty all the time and like yeah. balding. Um yeah, so Sorel and Anthony all the time. Who, <laughs> so there's like Sorel and Anthony who are obviously much older than Gilda. And as far as I understand, I think Sorel turned Anthony and so the I mean I think we'll get to like how relationships function. But Sorel and Anthony are both like brothers, but also they seem like lovers at the same time. Um, and then there's Samuel, but all of these people, like, I, I just don't feel like those characters change much one way or the other over the course of the book. This is related to Eleanor, I swear. Um, and it's each scene with them really just felt like the last scene with them. And there's a lot of like philosophical conversations over glasses of wine or champagne about like morality and vampirism and mortality or immortality. But I, I think speaking of Eleanor, she becomes this. Um, I know the Wikipedia character, one I don't think labels matter in this world and they certainly shouldn't matter for people who have different relationships with time and space. I think they just fall in love and have sex with whoever they want to. Um, but there is a way in which like Eleanor is framed as like this, this bisexual character, which is great, except for she's like the, the only, the big villain in the story. And like, she's Hmm. framed as like, promiscuous and self-indulgent and narcissistic and i was a little Mm. like oh look can we not this feels can we i don't know can we not frame this i i I, maybe like the one maybe explicitly by character as all of these things but um yeah she is she's the villain because she she sort of violates this ethos of exchange where she's not interested in sort of she she just takes and takes and takes because it is thrilling to her, because she is bored. Um, I have a question. Yes, yes, please. In my memory, I don't think that's true. She, I don't recall her being described as someone who does not perform the exchange with the humans that she takes blood from nightly. I think I feel like her big sin mm-hmm. was that she perhaps turned Samuel to. Not too early. She turned Samuel when she shouldn't have, when he wasn't like ready to accept what the life meant. Yeah. Samuel thought. So this is like another way to read uh, Eleanor is like Samuel thought this was a forever thing, and mm-hmm. Eleanor was just you know having a good time. And yeah, while yeah. that was a violation of their rules, it's like it's not like because they they reference other vampires who like kill right yeah, and yeah. who. Uh, take you know use their powers to take it and there there's a character later on who like we definitely see is using his powers to be like a pimp mm-hmm. and manipulate and control um yes young women and girls but i don't 
I don't feel like Eleanor was doing all that. Really, no. it's like her big issue with Samuel that she I, didn't handle Samuel, Samuel well. Yeah, sorry. By violating this ethos of exchange, I don't mean in her like um, minor interactions with human every every night when she's. I mean like she gets categorized categorizes this person who. I think the exchange for those for the quote unquote good vampires extends beyond when they're taking blood from humans. It is the sense that like your life as a vampire has to do with sharing and benevolence mm-hmm. and generosity. And I don't think Eleanor is characterized as someone who is benevolent True. or generous. Um, she just, she's characterized as someone who takes for her pleasure regardless of where that leaves the person she's taking from. So that's really what I meant by that. But you're absolutely right in that she's she's not killing humans. She's she's absolutely like just feeding on them and <laughs> probably giving them something in the moment. Um and, you know, doing what everybody else does. Um all that to say though is like she she yeah, she she is presented as this big villain, but I just was not much invested. Another part of that is that Sorel made Eleanor and I think he made her, I think the implication is that he maybe turned her when he shouldn't have because he was lonely. And mm. um, so he has a lot of guilt and shame about that. But I didn't really, I wasn't very interested or invested in his relationship with Eleanor. Um, and I didn't care much about his guilt or shame about that or his like responsibility for her narcissism or bad behavior. Um, and I think, again, that mostly has to do with like the way it's written and the narration feels very distant. So it felt hard for me to be particularly invested in the vampire characters, sometimes Gilda, but especially characters like Sorel and Anthony, who are very connected to Eleanor. But I think Eleanor, yeah, yeah, was like the most interesting character in that um, I think maybe one of my issues with Gilda was she was a little bit too moral. Like she just sort of came out, came into vampirism and was already like, she kind of had it figured out. There wasn't a lot of conflict about that. And I think a quote I shared earlier you know she's she says she didn't need a reminder about her power and i'm like man it'll be more interesting if you did (laughs) (laughs) it would be more interesting if you you did and you struggled a little bit and i think eleanor was more interesting in that she was very distinct from other vampires and that she just has some shit to work through (laughs) and that felt really compelling (laughs) um but i also don't like finding the the white woman compelling in a story about a black woman right Right. <laughs> so those are my thoughts on Eleanor. Uh, yeah, when she showed up, I was like, oh no. Here we go. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm out at chapter two. Right. Um, but... I was like, ooh, maybe some plot. And I think that's the thing about this book that felt hard for me was like, um, I mean, I already struggled to read. And so I need like as much plot as possible Mm -hmm. or just like action to move the story along. And it's a lot of, uh, I think, Tia, you've referenced like distant narrative and like people's thoughts. And I'm like, okay, but is my going to get beat up now? Like, you know, just... (laughs) Where's the, you know, action? But uh, she she caught my attention. Um, Mostly because of, like, how much Gilda was, like, wrapped up in her. Just, like, Mm -hmm. just felt like, I don't know how old. Wait, how old is 
Gilda by this point. So plus 40 years. So she's probably like in her 60s, 50s? Yeah, I think she was low 20s when she was made. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so she's like in her 70s. Four, oh plus gosh. 40 years? Yeah, right, I mean, round about. Oh, yeah, Lord, we can do math. <laughs> <laughs> Probably mid to but late just, 60s, maybe early 70s, yeah. <laughs> right, so it's like, it also feels like just late in the game for her to, we don't, I don't know much about her life in between, but I, I'm like, this, this is the person who does it for you, mm. you know? Right. better at this that's a great point right that's a great point yeah that is a great yeah so a 70s or 68 year old who doesn't know how to handle herself around someone she finds attractive which you know i don't know you could look at and say they're trying to say that's how uh Mm. you know enrapturing eleanor was Mm. which bothered me yeah. So it bothers me either way. So either Gilda in seventy years hasn't uh, ever dated or been drawn to someone mm-hmm. or attracted to someone other than right. Bird, um, or Eleanor is just that much of a bad bitch. Yeah. Which again, in a movie, I'm movie in a book about a young black woman. I'm annoyed that like the bad bitch is a white woman. Yeah. A white woman. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just felt like, I mean, Eleanor, I mean, it feels relative. Like Eleanor seems exciting because Gilda seems a little plain, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. like, you know, Mm -hmm. and not plain in a sense of like what she might've looked like, but I'm like, Gilda, who are you? And you seem defined by who's around you Mm -hmm. and what you think about other people. Mm -hmm. Um, like Honestly, I could have taken a story about her just being with the other women at the brothel, right? Yeah. Like for the rest of her life, and just seeing how she interacts with them because there's more people to talk mm-hmm. about. Yeah, um, yeah. And I kind of like her spectator view, but Eleanor just annoyed me because I was like, <laughs> she ain't that bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. And then what was the other thing I was gonna say? Uh. Maybe I, I think I lost my point, but um, yeah, I, once again, I'm, I'm annoyed by the number of white women that just seem to <laughs> take the spotlight. Mm-hmm. So, Great point. I don't think that persists after the first two chapters, if that's mm-hmm. if that makes it, it better. It would be great if I finished it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there are any other white women after that, those white Gilda right. and then Eleanor, right? Yeah, I think that mm, that feels right. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there okay. anymore. Cool, but they take um, up a place of prominence in the text that, and in Gilda's like yes. conception of herself, yeah, precisely. And I, Audrey, I think he makes such a great point about, yeah, what is it about Eleanor? I mean, maybe it is that Gilda is, I think, in a lot of ways, very reserved and just is happy to. I don't know what just fell and. Maybe listeners, you can hear it in the background, sorry. Um, yeah, maybe, yeah, Gilda is more reserved, and so Eleanor is, is very vibrant and uh, decisive in a way that Gilda might not be, and so maybe that's really attractive to her. 
but I, I yeah I think that speaks I think you make a great point that 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 her that the way she's enamored with Eleanor speaks to her maybe her own lack of characterization because it wasn't clear to me what specifically about Eleanor or really any of her love interests that that was so <laughs> compelling to her and I think that's maybe just because I wanted more of Gilda and I, I didn't always feel like she was fleshed out but I felt like that was glaringly obvious in the the love affair with um Eleanor specifically. So I think, yeah, Audrey, that's a great point. So maybe as readers, we shouldn't have to do this much work, but it's like you, you get a picture of Gilda as she is held up against all the other characters. Mm. And so that the, the question of like, well, what is it about Eleanor that she finds? Like, why is that so attractive? Why does that hold her so much is, you know, by contrast, um, Eleanor is someone who seems to be thoroughly enjoying herself mm-hmm. and her vampirism. And yeah. yes, there are people who disagree with some of the choices she makes, but she's, you know, she's into the fashion, she's into mm-hmm. sightseeing, she's into, I think she owns her own bar just like Sorrel mm-hmm. does. Um, yeah. Like she's doing the things that men are doing in 1890. Um, and so all of, all of that, uh, like juxtaposition, I think shows like that's not where Gilda is yet. Yeah. Um, by chapter two, but you know, there's you could question whether or not Gilda ever gets there. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, I think that I think Eleanor as the character shows us what's lacking in Gilda, which is interesting to me because one of the things I like about this story, and I, I feel like anything vampire or werewolf related that I read is they engage like the concept of embodiment Mm. really well. Like when Mm. they talk about power and feelings and love or desire or like hunger. Like I just, I love how it's always described. I wish I had like a good quote to just read right now, but like, I I like how those things, like the, the sensation of being across the table from someone Mm -hmm. and, you know, catching eyes with them or, sensing someone's desire for you like Mm -hmm. i I love i love reading stuff like that um so it's interesting because on the one hand i feel like they engage embodiment really well Mm -hmm. but at the same time it seems like that's like gilda's lacking the ability to engage life and and embody like where she in where she is Mm -hmm. and like that's what eleanor does that's what eleanor is doing i think that and in some sense is what julius is doing Mm -hmm. and even in her like travel like that's what bird is doing like bird is figuring out her place in the world yeah um and it just seems to take 200 years for eleanor to get there Mm -hmm. so when i so one of the questions early on in reading i was like okay well let me try to look for some themes. And I was like, maybe there's this big lesson that Gilda uh, learns in each city and from each like new group of people that she's interacting with. And I think, I think the challenge though is like, well, so what does she learn then? And uh, was it Yerba? Yerba Buena mm-hmm. is like, oh, okay. She learns like there are some bad vampires and like, this is how they carry themselves. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's frustrating again in like in 2021 with like all that we're talking about in culture now to think like one of the lessons she learns is a corrective against in some ways, a woman who's just like living free. Yeah. 
and yeah. it, you know Eleanor's painted as and she does some villain you know she definitely has a bloodthirst mm-hmm. a bloodlust that like drives murder mm-hmm. um and that's part of the like underarching plot there but there's just all these other ways that it's like Eleanor is this bisexual woman with money who likes fashion and likes living it up, likes having a good time. Mm-hmm. Why does that have to be the villain? Precisely. Of her, you know, that, that guild is supposed to learn, don't be like Eleanor. Precisely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder, I mean, yeah, I, I feel you. Cause I, I'm not, I don't love that, that this, I mean, she is selfish for sure, but I, <laughs> why couldn't she be free and not selfish you know I think that that would have been interesting but I, I do wonder if there's a, a way in which we can read the sum of free, some of uh, Eleanor's freedom absolutely comes out of her white womanhood right like there's a way in which she oh, can yeah. be and I think there's a moment in the text where she apologizes to Gilda for, for not remembering that they didn't come from the same from the same place. I don't remember exactly what the conflict was. It might've been about the thoughts, like reading one's thoughts. I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah that was that. Yeah, Eleanor reads her thoughts and, and Gilda's like, listen, homie, look, like, I came straight out of slavery. <laughs> Stay the fuck out of my thoughts. That's the only safe place. I'll fuck you up. Um, <laughs> and Eleanor in like a rare moment of self-awareness for white women is like, yeah, bro. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's shit. I'm not sorry. I meant exactly what I said. Um, <laughs> I meant exactly what I said. But in this, you know, this moment of self awareness, she's like, yeah, I forgot that we don't have the same story. Um, and so, yeah, there's a way in which Eleanor can be free as this ostensibly stunning white woman that that Eleanor might not be able to be be free. But it's also fantasy, and Eleanor. I mean. Gilda is a vampire, <laughs> like and she's powerful, <laughs> and she's very rich at this point. Yeah, I I think I I really would have I wanted to see Gilda live in more freedom and more indulgence, mm-hmm. um, and maybe I don't necessarily believe that that books by black authors about black characters have to have a lesson. It doesn't have to be pedagogy in any way, but I wonder too if like there's a, a restraint there, right? That that even in a world of black vampires, right, that that there's still a restraint that black <laughs> queer vampires might have to have that a white queer vampire might not have to have or or exercise, and she didn't, you know. Um, now, granted, we can sort of argue that she's punished for that lack of restraint later. Um, but yeah, there's a way in which I, I think I just wanted... Gilda, the like, I, we can talk about the the semi eroticism and the lack of eroticism because that's an interesting mm-hmm. yeah thing to me. There. And I, I don't know, somebody who avidly reads fan fiction and romance novels and erotica, I wanted it to be more explicit. Quite frankly, Come on. I want the details, <laughs> and there wasn't <laughs> that, but. Um, yeah, I just wanted Gilda to be able to exercise more freedom, and she felt so. I love the word "unbounded" to res- to to think about fantasy, and she felt so bounded the whole book. And I'm like, there are I think three sex scenes total. in two hundred years of her life. Yes, and maybe there's an implication. Maybe 
Oh. Yeah, and maybe we're supposed to read that it's like she she is having sex and she's enjoying it, and it's just not showing up in the. But I didn't get that sense. I actually got that sense that she was incredibly restrained with her own desire, um, and that she like befriended lots of women and she was close to them, and that was like a proxy for sexual desire and eroticism. But she wasn't often acting on it, and I'm like, girl. <laughs> I think there's a throwaway line that I noticed in my second reading that she, it's like, I think it's something like, kind of like, well, you know, of course she's taken other, I don't even know if they use the word lovers, but like it, it alludes to the idea that yes, she has had sex with more people that, um, you know, then we get from chapter to chapter, Mm -hmm. but it's still, it's an interesting choice from go. It, 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 and I, yes, I'm conditioned by all of the white uh, vampire mm. content that I've consumed. But I'm like, there should be way more sex here. This is a young black woman who looks like she's in her low 20s, who's living yeah. for 200 years in okay. seven different cities that we get uh, chapters from, I think. Yeah. And three sex scenes? And even like as as much as she was infatuated with Eleanor, all they did was kiss once. Yep. And that's, and I'm like, okay. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Ajua, how'd that feel to you? Uh, to go with the new vocab that I've learned Ooh, during this episode, maybe because it's not high fantasy oh. that mm. we have this vampire, this black vampire, who is just now experiencing freedom Mm. like she starts she starts her or the story starts with her being rescued and so Mm. we are watching gilda figure out freedom Mm -hmm. because so many of her formative years were i mean all of it is formational all of life is formation but Mm. like if you spent the first 20 years of your life being told what to do and now you get the next 180. Like, there's some patterns that need to be unlearned. Yeah. Yeah. And I even think of my own life. I'm like, Come on. Yeah, I'm 29, but that's still be doing shit from 10 years old. Come you on. Know? Uh, like, I still think about fantasy in the same way that I thought about it at 10. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, I'm trying to change. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of Gilda that I, as y'all were talking, I was like, oh, shoot. Um <laughs> I identify Damn, with that. Like that the repressed way of engaging with the world. It's like, mm-hmm. girl, you ain't on the plantation no more. You're free. Oh, you free. Come on. Free. Okay. Receive that word, listeners. Yes. Receive that this, word, Ajua. This is why I love books because Ajua. it feels like it it feels like an exegetical exercise in my oh. life because I'm like What's there for me to learn here? Mm. You know, that's why homegoing is so life shifting for me. And there's something about this book that's like, I think, I mean, the pandemic has me thinking about like, what would I do if I had no rules or like if money wasn't a factor, you know? And so, the, or, you know, <laughs> back to you up in the camera. <laughs> Eagerly waiting for you to name the things you would do if you. Okay. Well, it's okay. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Keep, keep going. 
Um, we're still in the dreaming phase, but I, you know, I've like, beautiful. I've been thinking a lot about my own imagination and like, what are the things that hinder that? Yeah. And I wonder for Gilda, I don't want to say like, oh, it's all because of slavery, but like, yeah. if I saw a white vampire doing what she was doing, I'd be like, um, I don't think I can do that. Yeah. Like, I can't just be out here like the way you are. Yeah. But Okay. Sorry. But I also didn't finish the books. So. It's okay, it's okay. <laughs> she doesn't. She doesn't yeah, become so less repressed over the t- the, right, the yeah, course yeah, of the yeah, book. Okay, became missing Yeah. <laughs> right, and you know, there have been a couple moments in my life where I feel where I have felt like not restrained, and I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. But there's always this like little thing in the back of my head that's like, it's not gonna last that long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah, and so I resonate with Gilda and like this sense of like I feel like the parts that I did read, she's watching everybody else like really enjoy the party and like lose themselves in it, and she's like, "Yeah, I can't." Yeah, excellent point. That's really perceptive. um, yeah. So there's uh, another story that I like um, where there's this woman. Like, yeah, not in this book. Uh, this woman who's a werewolf and werewolves. And this story, um, I think still, they only change on the full moon. They can't control when they change. Mm-hmm. But when they're in their human state, they retain their invulnerability. Mm-hmm. So it's still like you have to either cut their head off or, um, you know, I think Silver works in this in this uh, series. And but they they have super strengths, heightened senses, like they keep all of that in their humanity. And there is this line in there that I'll never forget because so it, and it's also ter- told through like it's kind of like a first person diary mm-hmm. set is each chapter. And she's she's writing and talk, Tallulah is the character. She's talking about um, like never realizing how much of her like mental energy was used up and like feeling unsafe as a woman. Mm. And she's now free from that as, you know, as a werewolf and how that just completely changes how she lives her life. Yeah. So when I think about Audra, what you were saying about Gilda and Eleanor and you're like, well, you know, you're out here as a white woman. I can't live like that. It's like, but maybe part of the gift of her vampirism is like, she could like, who going to check her? Nobody. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, you know, I'm not saying yeah. it would have been easy in 1890 to navigate that, but yeah. there is a way that, like, that chapter could have gone really differently because the lesson she could have gotten from her time there mm-hmm. was actually, I have more freedom than I've, more freedom and more power than I have been living over these 60 some years, right. and like, actually could step a little bit towards Eleanor's side. Mm-hmm. Than than I yeah. normally would because of how I look, but she, mm-hmm. you know, again, that's not what Gomez does yeah. with the narrative. But like, it feels like that was there on the plate yeah. as an offering. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we get yeah we get moments of that even when she's at Water. It's like watching the women. I think one of them, Rachel, always talks about like traveling and mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. and she's like, you know, <laughs> just kind of like side eyeing everybody. Yeah. Uh, mm. The yeah, it it just feels like a missed invitation. Mm. I think I feel sad for Gilda. Mm. That's what I'm feeling right now. That's yeah, because yeah. I, I think it it does feel like a missed invitation. 
and reader, reflect in your own life where you have missed well, invitations to into freedom. Preach, preach out. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> and I'm wondering too. Like, I mean, no, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Tia. No, I, I was thinking about like, I also think, okay, so I think within the content of the narrative, there's a particular type of querying happening. And that in queer theory, it, it, it really does not just refer to, to, to orientation or, or sexuality. It, it has a lot to do with like resisting anti-hegemonic ways of thinking and relating. Mm-hmm. And so like she's doing that in the, the content of the narrative. But I also wonder if like in this text, right, where it's about a vampire who theoretically can, can live for millennia, 200 years is not that long in Gilda's story. Like what we're reading. And I think in white Western narratives, we really like linearity and we like conclusions and we like resolution, Mm -hmm. but maybe what the Gilda stories is doing is pushing all of that aside for a longer process of becoming like Gilda is just becoming, we don't know what she's becoming because the story sort of ends rather abruptly but we can assume and i'm a a fan fiction writer so i can assume a a fucking lot okay (laughs) (laughs) we're very good at assuming and extending things right that she has all of this time before her to embrace this sort of freedom that she might not get in this text and maybe that's like that is a subversive act not to read too much into gomez's intention but that's a subversive act in narrative fiction where there doesn't need to be a clear resolution where the character actually doesn't need to develop in the same ways that we think about the three parts or the three act story mm. specifically referring to film. Um, <laughs> right. Like there, there doesn't need to be that. And I, and I felt that in this book, right. Like where I was often very frustrated with like the lack of what I felt like was development. Cause I actually felt like each chapter read the same way. Like as she, she had a relationship and she learned sort of the same lesson, which is like relationships are important and her relationships <laughs> are fleeting, but they're still meaningful. And I was like, well, yeah, girl, you learned that in San Francisco, like 50 years ago. <laughs> um, but right. Like maybe Gomez is offering an, an, a different imagination, not only for like the content of this character's life, but the narrative in itself where it is just about becoming, and there is no resolution there's always change and mutability and um and i mean like that's like me i'm i'm just coming i'm just now coming to that realization because i was frustrated with a lot of this book because i wanted quote unquote more to happen um and maybe it's not about that maybe it's just that for a black queer vampire it takes hundreds and hundreds of years to feel free so journey with me what if yep uh gomez's intention yeah is i just want to write a coming of age story for a young black woman and because this world is so fucked up what i have to do to get a young black woman there minus like all the triggering trauma stories is to say that she's a vampire that lives for 200 years Mm. and so it seems slow but it's because in reality, it's like what white characters get to do in a summer Ooh. on a, you know, in a movie. And it's like, what if 
we just use vampirism as a device to allow Gilda to slowly find herself. And because, yeah, I like your point. You're right, Tia. Like, I mean, if Gilda lives to be an old one and she's like 800, 1,000 years old, then she actually ends the story in a really great place. Yeah. Right? Like, Mm. okay, she's 200. She's figured it out. And now she's going to live another 800 years as a more fully realized self actual like essentially what if these 200 years are her teenage angst mm. mm-hmm. and she actually ends the story at i don't know 25 or 21 whatever yeah um but it, like i mean you know obviously we're, we're this is not an interview podcast but it's like i wonder <laughs> if, if gomez is really just saying i just want to write a coming of age story about a black girl black woman a black girl who becomes a black woman and here's how I'm going to like wrap that. Yeah. So, so that, so that we can step away from, it doesn't have to involve fear. It doesn't have to involve trauma. It doesn't have to involve all of these things that we think would be present in the real world. Mm-hmm. Damn. You know, as y'all were talking, I was like, I thought to myself and then y'all were saying, I was like, maybe this is, um, as a, person who's like re-entering fantasy as a genre like this might be one of the better entry points that for people who don't usually read the genre because Mm -hmm. you have to before you can like play the games of the book you have to like learn the game Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I spent so much time being like oh wait that's not a rule here like (laughs) oh wait like that doesn't exist here um and yeah, I, I like Thurston's point about like this is a coming of age story and maybe a model for like what it looks like to just explore. Yeah. Like I have access to this freedom. Yeah. I don't have to use it in these particular ways, but I could if I wanted to. Right. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Damn. Okay. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you've heard, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and leave a glowing review. You can reach us at ourcanonpod at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at ourcanonpod. Music was done by Kamaria Fife, and our producer was the illustrious Ajwa Asante. Thank you.